This episode is brought to you by Upside, one of DC's fastest growing tech startups. Upside is looking for innovative engineers who want to disrupt the norm and they're always hiring. Check out upside.com slash team to learn more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Greater Than Code. I am Astrid County, and I'm here with my great friend, Jamie Hampton. Thanks, Astrid. And I am also here with my friend and fellow panelist, Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, and thank you. Um, We also have two guests today. Jamie, why don't you uh, go ahead and introduce the first one? I'd be happy to. So today we have on the show Thursday Bram. Thursday writes, speaks, and organizes communities around technology, business, and culture. She was the editor of the Responsible Communication Style Guide. And you can find Thursday online at thursdaybram.com. And our other guest today is actually returning to the show from episode 13. Audrey Eshright is a writer, community organizer, and software developer based in Portland, Oregon, where it's lovely and rainy now. Yay! Yay! She's the editor and publisher of The Recompiler, and previously she founded Caligator, an open-source community calendaring service, and co-founded Open Source Bridge, which is a great annual conference for open-source citizens. Welcome to the show, Thursday and Audrey. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having us. So uh, a question that we really like to start off a lot of our shows with is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I can tackle that first. My superpower is that I will go talk to just about anyone and I don't feel shy most of the time, which I think is a pretty great superpower. Whoa. Yeah. And I just was always like this. Uh, I was a very nosy child. Um, so I didn't really acquire it. I wasn't bitten by a radioactive shy person or anything. So <laughs> your parents are just like, oh, that's Thursday. <laughs> Pretty much. That's a very powerful superpower, I think. Yeah. I was sort of expecting Thursday to say that her superpower was planning for every single contingency because that's something I really value about her. And I think that's something that we have in common. Uh, (laughs) But also I would say that one of mine is uh, getting through very difficult conversations. And that's something that I've just learned from a lot of personal experience and reflection and having to get through some difficult situations and just find the kindest way to do that. Oh, now I want to ask you for tips on that. I know. I was just thinking that too. (laughs) How do you do it? So there's a technique called reflective listening. And so even if you go into a really difficult and stressful situation where you really want something, you really need something, you have to do it from that other person's perspective. You have to really understand what they're coming to that conversation with. And if you don't know that, you need to ask for that. So I try to go into a conversation I think is going to be very hard by thinking about what I need, what I want from it, and what I think I know about that other person and their expectations. And then I ask. You know, so if I say, hey, I really need uh, well, like a common household thing, I really need you to do the laundry today. And for whatever reason, that's been a very contentious thing. So, you know, we go into the problem of the laundry isn't getting done. And I think I don't have time to do the laundry. Right. That's why I'm not getting it done. And, you know, I, I don't actually know why you're not doing the laundry. Right. But I can ask you, like, do you think it's my job to do the laundry? Did we agree on this? I don't even remember. Right. You know, I can go in with a lot of questions and intend to just really listen to what that other person tells me. You know, maybe it turns out that they're allergic to the laundry soap. Didn't know that. I have had household problems that, that, you know, were just really unexpected for me like that. I might find out that actually you just forgot about it and we need to write it on the calendar or on the wall. 
you know, I, there's just lots of ways that I might misread or misunderstand the situation, but it turns out that we have a lot of common ground. And even if we don't have common ground, I need to say, well, the laundry has to get done, right? One of us has to do it. Somebody has to deal with this. So we have to find some way that we can work together on that or we're not roommates anymore, right? <laughs> so you don't just go in guns blazing like, you didn't do the laundry and you're a terrible person. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, you know, especially with chores, people do feel like terrible, like they're a terrible person, right? So if you reinforce that, you're, you, you know, nobody gets what they want. Everyone feels bad. <laughs> So it kind of sounds like you are diffusing potential bombs by just asking a question as -hmm. opposed to assuming, you know, like why they're not doing it or if they have a problem or something like that. Yeah. And the, I mean, like the less something is happening the way I want it to, probably the less that I know about what's going on there. Right. So for me, that's just really a sign that I need to ask questions and be very gentle about it and uh, listen to what I hear, you know, not force my expectations onto the situation. Well, that sounds like a very responsible way of communicating. There might be a theme in our efforts. (laughs) So today we're doing a very special book club episode of Greater Than Code, which I've been excited about for a while. And um, we're going to talk about the Responsible Communication Style Guide which Sam is just holding up a beautiful paper copy of. I only have the digital copy, unfortunately. And that was put out by the recompiler recently. And Thursday was the editor. And so we have both of you on to talk about it. And I'm really excited. Where did the idea come from to make a book about this? I've wanted this book for about the last decade. Like, I've been a writer of various kinds for years, and I have made a lot of mistakes over the many years I've been writing. And it's never necessarily an intentional mistake, but it's really hard to necessarily know what you're doing without a reference guide. It's hard to keep this much information in your head. So having the actual style guide that I wanted, that's where this really started for me. And then I told Audrey about the idea, and Audrey has been fantastic to work with. Uh, Thank you. I was really excited um, when you proposed this to me because I know that working on the recompiler, we have a lot of these questions all of the time, even though people do write from their own backgrounds and they're, you know, really share their own perspectives. Um, we still need to be able to talk about each other, right? You know, we need to be able to talk about each other's identities. And as the book says, be very responsible about that. And there were just questions I didn't know how to answer uh, the same way that Thursday says. I also knew that I hadn't seen a reference like this anywhere. Um, and we did a little bit of research on that uh, and just realized that there were so many separate reference guides and there isn't a lot out there that puts it all together. The intersectional perspective is really important to us. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with the book so far, what's the short description? Why would they want to read this book? The short description is that it's a style guide. It's a reference book for anybody who's communicating about identity. So uh, there's two kind of chunks to it. One chunk is basically just a list of terms, how to define them, how to use them, how to make sure that you are not using them incorrectly. 
Uh, then there are uh, a set of articles that talk about the process of writing inclusively. Some of them are a little bit more specific. Uh, one's about writing inclusive documentation. Uh, one's about the concept of uh, people-first writing, which comes up in a lot of communities, but not all communities use. So it's got some clarification on which communities use it and how to ask if you're talking to somebody from one of those communities. Um, and then we've added in a couple of appendices that are just things that we have to look up on a regular basis anyhow. So they might as well be sitting on our desk or in that ebook that's always open as well. So like one of the appendices is a list of major holidays and observances. So if you're trying to figure out when to plan a particular thing, you can look it up in the book and check that you aren't planning a conference during Yom Kippur, which is a thing that continues to happen, but uh, that I personally find really frustrating. Holy Week, too. It's really weird to have parties on Good Friday, and yet... <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just uh, focused on Jewish and Christian identities, but we've tried to take a really intersectional approach with it. So uh, we've brought in holidays uh, from a variety of different cultures, as well as observances like Right now is uh, National Hispanic Heritage Month, even though it goes, it's not like any of the other months where, uh, like Black History Month is the month of February. Hispanic Heritage Month is October 15th to November 15th. And like keeping that in my head was non-trivial. One of the things that I really enjoyed about um, this aspect of inclusiveness on the book is that I mean, for example, just to stick with some of the religion section stuff, as we finished it up, we realized that we didn't know enough about Islam, that we needed to get somebody who could read it and give us more information. Um, we did more research to realize that we had, you know, to make sure we had all the details right. We, um, you know, discussed Satanism and how to fit that in there in a way that really made sense, you know, and just how to describe all of these things that whether or not we had personal experience with, we knew that they were real parts of people's lives. And I think that that's like a really good opportunity to talk about some of the ways that we put this together. Um, Cause I mean, going into it, we didn't want to try to be experts in something that we're clearly not experts in. So while we provided the framework, we brought in a ton of experts. We have our different section editors, but we also have our sensitivity readers. We have, just this amazing group of people who helped us make sure that we were offering something that was actually intersectional, that was actually useful from a variety of different perspectives, and that really reflected the communities that we were trying to describe in their own words and in ways that they wanted to be described. I could tell how much like labor of love went into that when I was reading it. Obviously, I'm also not an expert on like every single thing that was in the book either. So I was kind of trusting all of you, but I feel like I'm kind of an expert in um, the transgender community and how we like to say things and what kind of phrasing we like to use and what kind of uh, language we like to use. And so reading those sections and seeing how right everything was <laughs> made me feel like I had a lot of faith in the other sections too, the ones that I didn't know about. So it gave me a lot of confidence that even the pieces that I didn't know and that I was learning, that I was learning the right things. 
How did you go about asking people these questions to make sure that your your content was correct? Like the people who would be more uh, aware of things that you were less aware. Like what is the way that you went about asking those questions? Well, I'd say this is one of the reasons we decided to do a Kickstarter is because I didn't want to ask those questions without being able to pay people for their time. Like that's really important to me that like a lot of the people that we we asked to work on this project are subject matter uh, experts, but that means that they're activists, they're freelancers, they're writers and creators, they're people who might not have the time to work on a project like this for free. So being able to say, hey, not only do I love your work, but I have cash money that I can pay you for additional work was really important. I don't think that this is work that people should be asked to do for free, especially since there are some resources out there, though not quite the resource <laughs> that we wanted to build. So being able to attach money was definitely like the first step. The second step was we both had like a list of people that we thought would be good for this project, but we wanted to, we did a open call for articles. We wanted to reach out beyond our networks a little bit. Um, and I think that actually doing the Kickstarter helped with that a little bit too, because it put the project in front of people. And then people were like, oh, this is a thing that is looking for help that we can contribute to. So I think that's how it kind of started off. I, I had a list going in of some of the editors that I really wanted to recruit people who had already written about this in a really great way. And then uh, being able to ask our community for things like sensitivity rating was also really crucial. Um, being able to ask people who had a really wide variety of backgrounds was really important. The thing I would add to that, too, is that, you know, there were times when we just needed to check a couple of details. And I tried to be really specific about what I was asking people to do, you know, that it's not like read this whole chapter and just tell me what you think. I tried to ask really specific questions like, hey, we've got this definition in here. Does that match how you think of this thing? Does that match what you know about it? Or are we missing something that we need to make sure to include? I'm so glad that you were able to pay people for their work on this. I know it's it's so common that people get asked to perform uh, unpaid emotional labor, and it's really it's really encouraging to hear that you were not contributing to that. We live under capitalism, but we do not have to make it worse. <laughs> right. And I would say that um, it makes a project like this both easier and harder, right? It's easier that we paid people, we could really show that we respected them and their time. It's harder because we had to raise $20,000. You know, it's not like I resent that burden in the slightest, but it's still work, you know, to get out there mm -hmm. and raise money for a project like this, knowing that we're not going to be automatically on the top of anybody's list. You know, we're going to have to really uh, make a good argument for why this book matters. Who is the audience that you hope will read this book and use it the most? For me, it's um, people who write those like sign up pages for different services. <laughs> uh, you know, it, I just I think that there's so many ways that we ask for user information on just basic web apps, even that really don't work for a lot of identities and really aren't very respectful. And having, you know, been a developer in some conversations where I was really trying to advocate for what seemed to be like a, you know, a good practice. And maybe I didn't have all the perspectives to reference. Um, I just really like that there's a reference that maybe people can be using in their work to say, oh, you know, 
actually we should do gender this way, or we should ask for names this way instead of just going with what works for the five people who are directly on the project. That was my favorite article in the book also. And I was going to mention that. I think that we don't even think about what information we're asking from users. A lot of the time we just go like, well, what do you, what do you need? Because what normally gets asked your name, your email, your gender, your location. And I feel like there's no thought put into like, well, do we need to know these things? Are we going to use these things for something useful? Are we going to use these things for something that people actively don't want us to use these things for? And it makes people very skeptical, I think, about signing up for some services. Like, I know that at this point, if a service asks for my gender and there's two options, like, I'm just not going to use your service. Like, I just don't need, almost always, unless it's something like medical that I actually do need, I'll just live. I've lived my whole life without your service and I will continue living it without it. <laughs> That article actually came about because of a specific request from one of our writers. So Dash Buck uh, wrote the article on interviewing people about their identity, if they've transitioned their names, their uh, pronouns, all of that. But as Dash and I were going through that article, we noticed that like there were some specific things that we needed to address in terms of forms. So we added on to the book our way through to make sure that we covered that. But that's honestly like we wouldn't have done that if we hadn't gone to these subject matter experts, if we hadn't have been able to bring in these people with different perspectives. So like, I'm just so amazed by the, the people that we've gotten to work with. So that, that might be why I keep referring to them. That brings me to another question, actually, what you just said, how much of this book, like the final product of this book, how much of that was about what you expected to write at the beginning and how much of that evolved over the course of working on it? So I'd say that the framework is pretty much what we imagined with our sections about identity, our articles, our appendices. We definitely started out with just the five sections and added an intersectional section partway through as we realized was going to be a better organization schema. But the specific items, the specific articles, the specific language that are in the book, I tried to go into it without a lot of expectations because I really wanted to make sure that it was our subject matter experts who were setting the guidelines for their sections because they know those sections better than, than I do. I agree. There were a lot of details. Um, I, I thought our framework worked, worked really well, but there were a lot of details that I just wouldn't have thought about until people started to write some piece of it. And then sometimes that also made it easier to say, oh, well, if we have this, then we have to have that, you know, realizing that uh, different topics went together and that if we had explained sort of one piece of the issue, then we needed to make sure that the rest of it was in there, too. And similarly, there are a couple of things that I expected to have in the book that because of the scope, we decided to pull. For instance, we have a religion section, but we didn't get into an in-depth discussion of Palestine and Israel, which is definitely important information. But because of the scope of this book didn't fit, um, we are planning to do like we think of this as a living project. We are planning to do a supplement that will cover those topics but we did have to adjust as we were doing this. So one of the interesting things that happened to me as I read this book was uh, there you have this section about people first language, which is the idea that instead of saying a handicapped person, you would say a person with a disability. 
And handicapped is problematic for other reasons that you can get into if you read the book, blah, blah, blah. But what I found really interesting was that I'd, I'd run across the idea of people first language. And I thought, well, that seems like a good general rule. And I hadn't really thought about it much beyond that. And then you have this article that talks about all of the reasons that people first language might not work and all of the communities that don't necessarily use it or appreciate it. And I had this the the really fun experience of watching myself encounter this cognitive dissonance of like, well, I thought this was a useful and good thing. And so that was really fun. And then that reminded me of this article by Karanda Adair. She calls it the five stages of unlearning racism, uh, where stage two, she says, the opposite of racism is colorblindness. And to, the parallel to me there is that I wanted to use people first language for everything because it was like a simple rule I could understand. And pretending to be colorblind means you wind up treating everybody the same. And just as I had been trying to unlearn that and to be able to treat people differently based on how they wanted to be approached, I realized that I also needed to adjust the way I thought about my language. And so that was really interesting. Thank you for that. It gets into some very interesting topics of identity. You know, are we just, you know, a person with a gender or are we a gendered person? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, and maybe you relate to it differently in different parts of your life. You know, I encountered this first through autism advocacy, right? It's a very different thing to say that you're a person with autism versus an autistic person. Um, it really speaks to your experience, you know, whether it's just an innate part of your experience or it's a changeable part of your experience, you know. And so there are just a lot of different ways that somebody may choose to frame that. Yeah, I liked the discussion in the book around deaf culture as well, because my mom was an interpreter when I was a kid. So I know just a tiny bit about deaf culture. And so that I was able to use, you know, that knowledge that I had as a hook right into being able to extrapolate into different populations. So that was really neat too. And I think what you're saying is like very personal decision, like the idea of how someone wants to be referred to. It's hard to make a generalization about it because it's so personal to everyone. But if you come into the situation informed about the different ways that different people might prefer, then I feel like you have a better groundwork to ask someone and understand where they're coming from and then be able to like follow up and refer to them in a way that they've just told you they feel more comfortable with, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to, you know, what I was saying at the beginning, right. About like asking questions and listening. This is, this is so much of better communication is just learning what questions you can or should ask and learning to really listen to the answer, right. Not to um, bias it or influence it. I love that learning which questions you should ask. That's exactly it. Yeah. I think that the only like hard and fast rule we learned through this process is that you have to ask people questions and you have to listen to their answers and take them, take them as valid, which I would love if there was just do X, Y, and Z and you will always write correctly about people. But people are these interesting people that keep evolving and even like asking somebody today is not enough asking people consistently and over the course of your interactions with them and double checking it's that's the only hard and fast rule we've got is talk talk to people and listen to what they say what if you get it wrong oh i have gotten it so wrong we didn't put in um, a chapter about apologies. 
<laughs> maybe apologies yeah, will maybe. be one of the supplements. Yeah. Uh, so first off, apologize. Acknowledge that you have done something wrong because that's that's something that people do need to see to understand what's going on. And not just the person who you've inaccurately described. Everybody else needs to get the updated information as well, which it doesn't feel great, but it's a necessary step sometimes to, to make like a public apology. But an apology is never enough. You have to actually learn from that situation and improve. Going back to Karanda Adair for a moment, she gave me basically the best instructions I have ever had on how to live my life. It's like, try to do good, fuck it up, apologize, do better, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's it. The doing better part is very important to to make sure people people get it right. And Karanda has it as her pinned tweet. Step one is try to do good. Step two is fuck it up. Step three is apologize. Step four is try to not make the same mistake again. And yeah, that's how I try to approach every time I screw up because once again, people, people are people. So I expect to screw up again in my life. I just try not to make the same mistakes again. And if you, you know, you do mess up, you apologize and you keep making that mistake or you keep, uh, you know, squashing people (laughs) in that way, nobody trusts you anymore. You know, I I don't think that, I mean, I've seen people do that and I don't think they understand just how little trust people have in them afterward. And not just about that topic, but about anything they say, you know, if you can't trust that somebody actually is, um, listening to you and doing what they say they're going to, right? How can you trust anything else they tell you (laughs) about what's going on, what they're doing, what they think of you? Thursday, I liked what you said about acknowledging that you messed up because I feel like when you say, well, I'm apologizing, there's people assume that there's this implication that you're admitting that you messed up, but there's this like, sorry that I did something bad. Sorry that I messed up versus I'm sorry that you were offended by what I said, which isn't a real apology. Oh, I hate getting those apologies and I work very hard never to give them. Being told that somebody is sorry that I'm offended just makes me more offended. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like, I'm sorry there's something wrong with you is how that comes across. And if somebody is apologizing, if somebody is making the effort to apologize, they know that they did something wrong, whether or not they're admitting it. So let's just admit it. Let's treat people like humans and move on to the next thing that we are going to screw up and apologize for. This is something that I end up covering in code of conduct training a lot, um, that you need to understand that you've caused harm. You know, even if it's a fairly minor thing, it's well, it might be minor harm, but you still cause harm. And if you can't acknowledge that, then you're not really apologizing, you know, and I think sometimes it's okay to not understand that harm, right, to not really be able to just personally mirror what's going on there. You can still say, I can see that I've harmed you. I can see that I've hurt you. And I really I don't want to do that. So I'm very sorry. I'm going to try to be aware of that and not do that again. Yeah. And on the topic of apologies, I feel like this is turning into the Karanda Adair is so awesome show. 
uh, but a while back she shared uh, this thing called the four-part apology, which is this template for apologizing in, I think, a, a really impactful and helpful way. And it, the template goes, part one is, I'm sorry for, where you named the behavior. Uh, part two is, this is wrong because, where you acknowledge the nature of the harm that was caused. Uh, part three is, in the future I will, where you talk about what you're going to do to change. And part four is, will you forgive me? And I'm not sure quite how I feel about part four. Sometimes, I mean, you can always hope for forgiveness, right? But uh, parts one through three are spot on. And yeah, I found this really useful in my own life. I like the will you forgive me? Because I think it just, it's good to hear that someone's actually asking, as opposed to trying to tell you how you should be responding to, to them in that cir- circumstance. Yeah, I guess maybe part of my discomfort with that is not growing up in a framework of forgiveness, which I think people who grew up in a in a culture of faith may have more uh, tools to deal with. I think that that's an okay, like a good question, as long as you realize that like the answer might be no, I don't yeah. forgive you. Right? Yeah, yeah. it may be no, <laughs> and it might be not right now, and I don't know when. <laughs> don't ask me. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it does sort of open up a way for for true communication, right? Um, you're suggesting that it might be possible. So, yeah, but I I mean I agree that it can feel really forced. It can feel like, well, you know, will you so that we can just move on from this? You know, maybe I'm not ready to move on. I'm also super cool with this being the Karanda fan episode. Just <laughs> FYI. If that could be the name of it, even I would be on board. <laughs> Subtitle: Also, Karanda Adair is great. <laughs> You'll put it on a T-shirt. I was going to say, I feel like we should talk about shame too as a part of this. You know that I think um, shame over not being able to do the right thing sometimes keeps us from trying to do better, especially with really complicated aspects of identity, because we can tell that it's a very personal thing. I think uh, sometimes fearing shame, right? Shame is like this external thing that's put on us uh, can keep people from actually just stepping up and doing the work because it is kind of vulnerable. It is kind of hard to know that you might make mistakes and you might, uh, you might hurt people by trying to communicate with them, you know? And I don't think that it's got an easy, like an easy answer or an easy way to deal with it. I just think it's something to be really aware of, right? That that's part of our, culture and our way of thinking about this and what we might feel coming into it. I think your whole book is an answer to that in a way, because I think it related to shame, this fear of trying is like a fear of failing. And if you have more resources to be like, I read this and I feel like I have a background and I know where I'm coming from, like that can empower people to be able to try. Like, I think that the the fear is related to like not even knowing where to start. And so I think this book is a really, really good place to start. So thank you for making it. Thank you. I would also continue with that thought. Um, So I come from a journalism background and harm is not something we necessarily talk about in journalism classes when we're in the newsroom, when we're working on a project. In my background, like there were certain things that were considered unacceptable because they would like open the paper you work up to libel laws. So we got lots of training about libel laws, but we didn't get a lot of training about 
interviewing uh, beyond how to get the right information that the paper needed. We didn't get a lot of training on how to talk to people, how to understand the context of their experiences. We got some like basic guidance on don't say this because this is a problem, but we didn't get any explanation of what to use instead. So for instance, uh, like there were a lot of things that we get from AP style that say, all right, you're going to talk about race in this way to which I uh, am from Oklahoma. I entered at the Tulsa world, which is a very interesting paper, but there are some people who have been on staff there since 19, I don't know, 08 or something. And telling them, no, the AP style says we're talking about race in this way immediately leads into a discussion of, oh, you just want me to be politically correct and I'm going to write the way I write and the editor can deal with it later if it's really a problem, which was unkind to the editor in question because the editor in question was a young woman who didn't want to deal with that crap anyhow. And there's, there are improvements since when I went through journalism school, but it's not necessarily something that a lot of newsrooms are focusing on even today. Everybody grabs their copy of the AP Style Guide and says, oh, that's good enough. And the AP Style Guide comes from a very set perspective. And we come from a different set perspective. And I think we were really looking at that um, leading edge of it, right? We put in, um, let's see, we put in under-indexed you know, which was something that I just hadn't seen defined a lot of places, but I was starting to see people use it. Um, and I think the AP comes from, you know, not in a political way, but a conservative uh, approach, right? They're not going to push something in there until they think that it's fairly widely accepted. I also think that there's just such a big difference between, you know, doing something because, you know, it's uh, the kindest way to interact with them and doing something because otherwise it gets sued. Right. <laughs> it just it puts the blame and the responsibility in completely different directions. Yeah, those are on two completely different levels. That's a good point. But I would still rather someone treat me good because they're afraid that they'll get sued than just treat me bad. Oh, for sure. You know, and um, oh, in some tech companies, that may, may be all you really can hold on to. But I mean, that's just like a low bar. <laughs> True. <laughs> it's a really low bar to uh, pass. With the political correctness, I often feel like a lot of the conversation is about what people assume is widely accepted versus the truth about things. And that sometimes when you're trying to represent something truthfully, then you're being labeled as being politically correct because it's not the same language that's being used to talk about whatever it is more ubiquitously, but it doesn't necessarily make it more widely accepted. And I think that's something we've kind of just assumed because it's just, this is how it's always been. So obviously it's accepted, but I think that the accepting part is very assuming. And I don't think that um, it always applies. So like to try to use an example, I would say, if you think that most people in America live in a, in a large city, then when you talk about things related to city life, like traffic or housing issues or streets, then you would make differences if you were talking about somebody who lived in a rural area, you would actually say they live in a rural area and this is what this area looks like because you would assume that most people don't know what that is. And so you're trying to talk about it in a way that you think is describing 
And then maybe others might say, okay, why are you even talking about like that? You know, just say the name of the place and whatever. But if you don't actually know the truth about where people live or what their experiences are, then you're still making assumptions. And so I think half the political correctness conversation is an assumption about like, why do we have to use all these labels? Everybody knows what we're talking about. It's just this small group of people that are having a problem. So why should we change our behavior for this small group of people? Whereas I think it's probably more true that we don't know enough about people in general to even know if it's a small group of people, that if we're using different terminology, how do you know that's not widely accepted? If just because you haven't been using it doesn't mean that it's not actually being used. It's just it could be you or your paper or whatever your outlet is, whatever your communication place is that is not using this terminology, but it doesn't make it untrue or not even widely accepted. So I feel like in some ways we can't even have the is this politically correct conversation until we even know the truth about what is going on. That really resonates with me. I would also add that without that truth, without that understanding, without that context, nobody's able to communicate effectively anyhow. So mm-hmm. without that understanding, without building more of that relationship between who's doing the talking and who's doing the listening, uh, whether that's a journalist um, talking to their audience or even just one-on-one, I think that yeah, it's it's really easy to forget, honestly, that other people are not exactly the same. And that's a thing that I hope that we're working on. That I hope that this is a useful tool for. I would also maybe add that this is kind of a discussion of linguistics in some way as well. Like this assumption that English as a language doesn't change and we don't need new labels to describe (laughs) new things is completely unaware of the history of language, especially English, because, I mean, English has this reputation as that language that will rifle through all other languages' pockets and steal whatever (laughs) isn't nailed down, which is why English is often adopted for technical discussions, often adopted for scientific discussions, because we have historically had no shame about using new words and new labels and new terminology. And while I think the the discussion of political correctness might be motivated by more than just a lack of understanding on how language works, because once again, humans... I think that the way that English is evolving right now, the way that we're adding new terms, we're thinking about new concepts is honestly kind of cool and a really interesting evolution of language that's worth looking at. This is also an emotional labor issue, right? Um, Who has to do the work of being aware of other people. Certainly if you're on the other side of the political correctness that somebody is expressing it. what it means is that you have to learn how to be overly considerate of white people feelings, <laughs> overly cautious, instead of accepting that you do equal work, that you should be doing equal work here to understand and help people. I really like what you're saying about the way language evolves, because I think a lot of times when I get into a conversation about language on these topics, It's because someone's telling me, well, that's not a real word. Well, that's not grammatically correct. Well, you just made that up. And I'm like, well, A, I didn't just make it up. Somebody else made it up. But B, like, that's how all words 
became words. <laughs> Somebody made them up at some point. That's true. And so I think it comes down to this dichotomy where it's either I'm going to be really rigid and strict about the English language, or I'm going to respect how other people feel. And like at the end of the day, if I have to pick one of those, it's very obvious which one I'm going to choose. And I'm not sure why so many people get hung up on that step. I think maybe one of the reasons is because they're looking for a role and they feel like if I know this rule and then now I use it and you're telling me it's wrong, now I have to learn a new rule. And then what if somebody else tells me that's wrong and they have to learn a, a new rule? And I think it's actually way easier if you allow people to tell you how they want to be treated and you just treat them that way. That can be like a universal rule as opposed to trying to say, well, this is what they said. And so I don't want to change anymore. I'm tired of having to change a lot because that's kind of the opposition argument, which is it's too much change. I don't, I don't, I can't do this. I can't keep up with this. You just need to pick a box and stay there, which is already insulting to people who don't feel like they fit in a box. But I do, I think it comes from this place of, I don't know anything about this and you're telling me there's this rule. And then when I try to use it, then somebody told me the rule's wrong. So I'm tired of rules. You need to do what I know. So I don't have to keep doing this. That's why it's so refreshing to listen to Thursday be like, isn't it exciting that we're changing all these things and it's evolving and it's so cool to see. I'm like, yes. Yes, it's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I agree. It is super amazing. I um, I love hearing about different people's uh, perspectives and experiences. I also have absolutely heard people explicitly say what Astrid is commenting on, you know, that I already had to learn how to talk about women in the 70s. You already told me. And so, <laughs> like, why do I have to learn something else about it now? And it's, I don't know, it's very boring to me, right? to just refuse change so drastically. And you do change, you know, somebody who's saying that changes, they are not the same person they were in 1970. But we don't reflect on our personal change, unless you kind of have a lot of friction with the culture around you. You know, we don't reflect on that personal change the way that we notice it in others. You know, like, oh, I just had to learn your pronouns five years ago, and now they're different. <laughs> like, I've seen people do that very directly. Like, you know, and I think part of it is like, they're not very self-reflective either. You know, they're not really understanding themselves coming into that. Um, they just think everyone else keeps shifting around them, right? Keeps shaking them. I mean, there's, there's a small overlap with the same communities that say, I learned COBOL and I don't need to learn another language. I'm just going to program in COBOL for the rest of my life. And I do have a family saying... member. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a family member who has done that, you know, but yeah. I'm not saying that COBOL doesn't have its time and place. I'm just saying that maybe there are some alternatives that have happened since COBOL that are at least as good. <laughs> maybe that time and place is in the past. No, that was mean. I take that back. <laughs> that was just a joke. Uh, unfortunately, in our banking system. The past didn't go anywhere. <laughs> oh, Yeah. There's a lot of companies that rely on COBOL-based uh, inventory management still. I know several COBOL programmers who just go from company to company, updating their inventory system just enough that it keeps running and keeps shipping things, and then they're on to the next questionable inventory system. It might be uh, relevant to say that one of the um, supplements that we're talking about doing fairly soon is age, because age does have a role, not 
an all-inclusive role, of course, but it does have a role in how we talk about some of these things as well. Like a lot of people that we talk about uh, in terms of political correctness, I've heard referred to as dinosaurs, which no matter how cool dinosaurs are, might not always be the right word either. So (laughs) age is definitely a thing we're discussing as well around identity. And I think it's uh, just a thing that we erase from our technology, right? Um, there's this very historical perspective that we often bring to programming about not learning what's changed and what's different. And that also rolls into how we think about people. You know, we try to give them very static rules and it doesn't always work. Speaking of static rules, another thing I really liked about the book was at the end, there's a section, a list of like words that you shouldn't use, um, which was helpful. But then after that, there was a section of words that like, it was, I can't remember how it was worded. Use but it was with like, caution. These words, yeah, it's used with caution. It was like, these words could be used correctly if you know what you're doing with them. And I really like that because in particular, one of the words in that list was queer. And that's totally how I feel about the word queer. Like, I'm all for it. I use it all the time. I think it's a great word. And I don't like when people tell me not to use it. But there are things that you have to think about before you make the decision to use that word. And I like that the book kind of recognized that in different contexts, different things are acceptable. And there's not necessarily static rules about all of these words. So I appreciated that. Thank you. Our editors definitely were a guiding piece of that because there were several words where we were like, we can't put these on the don't use list, but there are certain people who without proper training, perhaps, <laughs> shouldn't shouldn't access these terms. It's like the, the uh, adult section of the library. Like, it's fine if you're ready for it. Right, like spirit animal was the most recognizable one on the list for me. It was like, I see people misusing that so often, just as an example. So a lot of it is about how your personal identity is reflected, right? It's very different to say, hey, I'm queer, and to have somebody say, you damn queers. Yes. You know, <laughs> um, a lot of these words, it's just because it's so different if I identify that way versus somebody tries to shame me for being that way. Right. Um, yeah, and about, that often is where why those words become so charged. It's about reclamation for me. So I think reclamation of words is very important. And it's hard because I don't want to force that on other people if they don't want it. But I also definitely resent people telling me that I can't reclaim words. I'm like, you can watch me. watch you with your ever-changing english language (laughs) it's our language we'll use it how we need to so this is the part of our show we have reflections and we reflect on the conversation that we had and anything insights that came up or calls to action for the future so i can go first my reflection is something that you said audrey which i wrote down so that i would not mess it up The less that something is happening the way I want it to, probably the less that I know, which I think is a really important thing to move forward thinking about. Because so often when something doesn't go the way you want, especially in interaction, the first reaction is, what is wrong with them? Uh, Which I think is human. Like, I'm not trying to say that that's, you're automatically a bad person, because I know I've done that plenty of times. But I think to think about it in terms of, there's probably something I don't know as opposed to there's something wrong with whoever they are and why they're behaving this way is really helpful in understanding how you can grow and learn from whatever happened and be able to not have the same mistake happen again 
because you just don't know what's going on. For me, one of the more interesting parts of this conversation was when I tried to make a joke and the factual basis of that joke was completely incorrect and I got to learn something. Yay! (laughs) Four step apology, Sam. So I also want to reflect on something Audrey said about people not wanting to learn new things. And basically the quote was, people who don't want to learn new things are boring. And I totally agree with that, but I feel like it's really important to say that because so often I feel like I internalize that people don't want to learn new things around me. And it's like, well, maybe I'm this burden for like expecting everyone to learn all these new things. Maybe I'm expecting too much of people. And so it's really great to hear like, no, it's not you. It's just boring if you don't want to learn, which I totally agree with. And once you say it, that's simply, it's just, it's so obvious to me. And she also talked about not being self-reflective, which I totally re- resonates with me a lot too. I made a post on Twitter one time and it was like me to cisgender people. Nice gender. Did your mom pick it out for you? <laughs> and people got really mad about it and they were like, what's wrong with being cisgender? And I was like, nothing. But like your mom did pick it out for you though. Like, have you ever thought about like why, have you ever reflected on why you feel that way? Like if you sit down and you like reflect really hard on your gender and how it makes you feel and you're like, yeah, I was born male and I love being male. I'll be like, great. I'm so happy for you. That sounds really convenient actually, but I'm glad that you thought about it before you like made a decision that this is who I am just because somebody told it to me once. So I think about that a lot. Well, I just want to repeat um, something Thursday said early in our conversation, which is that it's really amazing to pay people for their work. I mean, I had to like literally write the checks and it felt so good to send all of our editors and our writers a check to say, hey, this work was meaningful to us. We're really glad that you did it. Yeah, that was definitely one of the most enjoyable parts of this project. And it's probably like the first really enjoyable bit of capitalism I've had in a while, too. So I just I'm really proud of the the work that we were able to do. And I'm really proud of the, the people, the community who were able to contribute to this. Like, it is something that I'm really glad that we couldn't do alone, but that we didn't have to do alone. And I just wanted to say that, like, that's that's one of the best things about this project for me. So before we say goodbye, uh, is there somewhere that people can go to learn more about the book, about the recompiler, about uh, the two of you that you would like people to know? The Style Guide does have its own website, which is rcstyleguide.com. We are currently selling the ebook, which is available through rcstyleguide.com or through uh, recompilermag.com. And in early 2018, we will be doing another print run for physical copies of the ebook. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, speaking of paying people, October 24th, uh, we're doing another Kickstarter for the recompiler. Um, we're going into year three of publication, and we have a lot of plans um, for more issues and another book that we're actually getting ready to announce. And so I would love it if people would just keep an eye out for that. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We've had a really great conversation, and I look forward to more in the future. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks, listeners. We'll be back at you next week.